My name is Peter Kroll. I am one of the elders here for our church. If this is your first time with us, welcome. We're really delighted to have you here. When my wife Erin and I moved to State College in 2010, we had the extraordinary experience of having a man try to sell us a house that he didn't actually own. He thought he owned it, but he was sorely mistaken. And we learned this fact only on move-in day, when with all of our stuff loaded on the back of a rented truck, with two preschoolers, an infant, and Aaron nine months pregnant with Charlotte, we rolled into town to take possession of our new home, which had other people living in it. But they wouldn't leave, and we couldn't kick them out. And there was nothing we could do about it. Because the seller on our contract didn't actually own the house. We became homeless refugees living in a friend's basement for a week while earnestly seeking a new home. That was a time of deep suffering for our family, which left us a mess. Sometimes I found myself vacillating between wanting that guy to pay for his sins against us and wanting him to trust in Jesus to pay for them on his behalf. Now that was more than a decade ago and I thought I was over it until just this past year this gentleman reappeared in my life again when his kid played on a baseball team that I was coaching. I really thought I had gotten over the entire affair, but the day I realized who this kid's father was, I couldn't even sleep. The kid was a great kid, and the dad was fine as far as team parents go. But that season, that earlier season of severe suffering, had left me such a mess of conflicting thoughts and emotions that even a reminder of that suffering by crossing paths with the ombre was enough to trigger all kinds of turmoil and emotion. Now, as children of the living God, what do we do with a situation like mine? What do you do when your suffering is so severe that it's hard to even think straight? When you're desperate to find someone to blame, when everything seems backwards and inside out and upside down and hope seems impossible. The text we're looking at this morning will offer much help with these questions. We're in chapter 3 of our study through the book of Lamentations. If you have one of the church Bibles, it's on page 644. And in this chapter this morning, we'll see that when your feelings and wishes under agonizing pain, are a hot mess. There is a way to find hope. But it comes through a fight. It's not easy. We'll learn how to fight for hope this morning by considering four strategies. You can see in your outline. Admit how you really feel. Believe what you know to be true. Confess your tendency to vacillate. And finally, discover the source 
of steadfast love and mercy. Let me pray for us as we dive into the text. Our Father in heaven, please help us, equip us by your spirit and your word to honor you when life is a mess. And help us, Lord, now. Strengthen us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The first strategy of this text is to admit how you really feel. Now, you may have heard from the Psalms that the Lord is my shepherd. Have you heard that one? And you might have heard that he is a mighty warrior. Well, for the miserable wretch who wrote the book of Lamentations, those two metaphors have become a sinister mockery of his pain. Because while Lamentations 1 and 2 were primarily about the suffering of the people as a whole, in this chapter he gets shockingly personal about his own pain. Look at verses 1 through 18. I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy. Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with blocks of stones. He has made my paths crooked. He is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He bent his bow and set me as a target for his arrow. He drove into my kidneys the arrows of his quiver. I have become the laughingstock of all peoples, the object of their taunts all day long. He has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on gravel. And made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say, my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. In this section, the poet admits how he feels. He shares his own heart and he lets loose about how he personally feels about the destruction of Jerusalem in 587 BC. And as he shares his heart, he draws on two major metaphors from the Psalms. The Lord is my shepherd from Psalm 23 and others. And the Lord is a mighty warrior from Psalm 18 and others. But he takes these two metaphors and gives them a shocking twist. First, the Lord is my shepherd. David had said, his rod and his staff, they comfort me. But in verse 1 here, 
I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. David had said, he leads me beside still waters. But in verse 2, he has driven and brought me into darkness. David had said, he restores my soul. But here in verse 4, he has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. David had said, Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. But here in verse 6, He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. You see, this shepherd ought to be clearing a path and providing a way to pasture. But in verse 9, He has blocked my ways with ways, with blocks of stones. He has made my paths Crooked. You see, this sufferer has begun to feel as though the good shepherd of Israel has become something else. The second metaphor is that the Lord is a mighty warrior. And he picks up with this one in verse 10. Where one would expect a good shepherd to fight beasts on behalf of the sheep, this shepherd has become a beast and has turned his own hand against the sheep. You see in verse 10, instead of fighting the lion and the bear, he has become the bear and the lion lying in wait. In verse 11, he has torn me to pieces. In verses 12 and 13, he's taken his bow and arrow and have turned to point them at me. In verse 14, I'm the butt of every joke. In verse 15, my life is filled with bitterness and poison. And verse 16, the image is almost like a bully who grabs me by the back of the head, smashes my face into the ground, and makes me eat the gravel. In sum, verse 17, my soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. Now, this poem is masterfully presented. You may have noticed that the poet hasn't yet identified his assailant all through these verses. It's all been he, 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 he. And you might wondering that perhaps I've gotten it wrong back at the beginning when I said he's taking these metaphors about the Lord and twisting them. Maybe the one he's talking about is Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, or some other foe. But no, I got ahead of myself. I had to give away the end at the beginning because in verse 18... The poet finally identifies his adversary as the Lord, which is the personal name of the God of Israel, Yahweh. And it's the word that he saves in Hebrew, just as in English here, to be the very last word in this litany. The Hebrew is quite clear. It could even be translated, verse 18. My endurance and my hope have perished, and it is from Yahweh. How does this apply? Friends, the first crucial step to fight through agony for hope is to simply be honest about how you feel. Let's be frank. 
The happy psalms are not always what those in great pain need to hear. Psalm 23 may not be the best psalm when someone is in deepest darkness in life. Sometimes they need to hear the sad psalms, the laments. They need to know that they are not alone in feeling that God is against them. They need to know that they are not immature or unspiritual for feeling this way. Sometimes they need a vocabulary for their questions and their protests. And please understand this. Putting on a happy face and speaking of God's gifts to us only as though they were pleasant is not a measure of Christian maturity. Sucking up all those hurt and confused feelings when you're a mess might actually prevent you from finding the true hope the Lord wants for you. The advice to smile, God loves you, or to look for a silver lining is not going to inspire lasting hope. Now, please understand that I am not encouraging unbridled rage against God. These laments and lamentations are remarkably measured and thoughtful. I am not encouraging you to place yourself in opposition to God as though you can accuse Him of wrongdoing or evil. I'm not encouraging that. That did not end well for the Bible's most famous sufferer, Job, who received from God what is probably the longest and harshest rebuke in all of Scripture. It lasts for four long chapters at the end of the book of Job. So what I am encouraging you to do is simply to be honest about how it feels along with your questions and your protest. I encourage you to do what this poet does. We'll see it soon down in verse 38 and acknowledge that both good and bad come to us from the decree of the Lord. God, it sure seems like you're against me. It really looks like you have not kept your promises and I am receiving from your hand what I would have expected to receive from those who hate you. What gives? How long? As you may be aware of from human relationships, it is immensely difficult to be brutally honest with someone about what you really think of them in your deepest perspective, it requires an immense trust in that person. If I barely know you, I'm not going to be very forthcoming with my most personal opinions or even points of feedback for you. But the better I get to know you, and the more I trust you, the more I can frankly yet respectfully let you know how something has affected me and thereby I can appeal the way you may have acted in a given situation. And so it is with the Lord. This kind of honesty with Him requires immense trust in Him. 
From where does such trust arise? Well, it's point number two. Believe what you know to be true. The central part of this chapter, verses 19 through 39, this is the only place in the entire book of Lamentations where we get glimmers of hope. That's why this sermon is about finding hope, how to fight for hope. So we will be sorely tempted to linger here in these verses and set up camp. Because in this book, of all places, this is the part that finally might make us feel good. But we must keep in mind that this hope is very hard fought and very hard won. It comes in the context of rivers of tears. This is the hope in this chapter is not the hope of a birth, but the hope that comes following a death. It's not like the hope of an acceptance letter to your college of choice or a promotion in your career. It's more like the hope of a positive pregnancy test for a chronically infertile couple. You don't know if you can trust it or not. Is it really going to work? It's maybe like the slippery and perhaps the fragile hope of a brand new widow learning how to manage the finances that had been handled all those years by her dearly departed. She might find hope, but it's hard fought and hard won. That's the hope of this chapter. This takes a persistent and dedicated effort to recall and rely on what you know to be true. The first thing is letter A, to grasp what to remember. Verses 19 through 24. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Now, look at how he wrestles with his thought life here. What will he focus on remembering? In verses 19 and 20, he is prone, as are we all, to remember his affliction and his pain. He ruminates on these things to the point where it affects his ability to function. In verse 20, my soul is bowed down within me. And so in verse 21, it requires a conscious act of the will to remember something else. This is what I'm going to call to mind right now. This is what I'm going to choose to focus on. Verse 22. Yahweh's steadfast covenant love, which never ceases, and his mercies, which never end. Now, don't miss the implication here. What he's saying is, my present suffering, however terrible it is, it does not mean the end of God's love and mercy toward me. And friends, sometimes I have to say this out loud to myself in those hard seasons. Literally, I say it out loud. This 
What's happening to me right now is not the end of God's love for me. God, we are not breaking up over this. And while God's love and mercy are really, really great, sufferers also need to realize that what's even better than God's attitude toward you is God himself. Verse 24, the Lord is my portion. In other words, he, he himself is my inheritance, my reward. What I need the most right now is more of him. I don't just need more good gifts, more blessings, better health, more success. I need more of him. Therefore, verse 24, I will hope in him. You see, this is a battle. This is a fight. But it's one that we cannot relinquish when life is a mess. This is what we must remember. His love and mercy never end. But what I need even more than that is more of him. And so now the second part of the fight is to get our definitions straight, especially our definition, letter B, of what is good, good, good. Verses 25 through 30. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes and let him be filled with insults. This section focuses on the definition of what is good while under affliction. Now, why do I say that that's the focus? It's because Lamentations 3, like the chapters around it, it's in Hebrew, it's an acrostic poem where in this chapter every group of three verses begins with the same letter working through the alphabet so if it were english verses one two and three would start with a a and a verses four five and six each start with b b and b and so on for every group of three verses and here verses 25 through 27 this group of three is one of only two sets of verses in the, this poem that begin not only with the same letter but even with the same word at the beginning of all three verses. 25, 26, and 27 in Hebrew all begin with the word translated as good, good, good. Good is the Lord. Good it is to wait. Good it is to bear the yoke in youth. So while I said earlier in this sermon that it's not necessarily Christian maturity to speak of God's gifts only as though they were always pleasant. Please don't hear me saying that it's wise or recommended to speak as though there is nothing good that comes from God in suffering. That's part of the fight, is to get our definitions straight. What is good? And what the poet does here is remind himself of what he knows is good because he spent the first 18 verses of the chapter telling us, being honest, about what doesn't feel very good and notice even here he doesn't ever say my suffering is good 
He doesn't say that. What he says in verse 25 is, The Lord is good to those who wait for him and seek him. In verse 26, it's the act of waiting for the Lord's salvation that is good. In verse 27, it is bearing this yoke while you're young that is good. Don't let yourself get old and bitter. In other words, what he is saying is, I do not yet have access to God's full salvation. I have not yet been rescued out of my current affliction. That's not good. But the fact that it makes me sit here and wait because I know the only good God will eventually bring me the only good rescue, that act of waiting and nurturing my hope before I get old and bitter, that process is good. That's why sufferers often, verse 28, just need to sit alone in silence. There is a great burden that that comes along with suffering, and we ought not waste that pain. Let it inflame your hope in the only good God to eventually show up and give you more of himself. Because verse 29, there may yet be hope. There may yet be hope. Now, if it is good to get good gifts from God, but it's even better to get more of God himself, and if he himself will be the source of our hope, from verse 24, this process of waiting for him to show up is good, and it's really important for us to understand what we're going to eventually get when we get more of him. So what am I signing up for by waiting for this God? What kind of God is he anyway? That's letter C here. That's where he goes. Who this God really is. 31 through 39. For the Lord will not cast off forever. But though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. To crush underfoot all the prisoners of the earth, to deny a man justice in the presence of the Most High, to subvert a man in his lawsuit, the Lord does not approve. Who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Why should a living man complain, a man, about the punishment of his sins? Now, in this section, the poet tells us what sort of God this God of Israel is. Who is the God that he's waiting for? And for this section, let me begin at the end and work backwards through the text so we can get the import of what he's saying. First, in verses 37 through 39, he's saying that we believe that God is sovereign and in control of everything that comes to pass. Verse 37, all that comes to pass has been commanded by him. Verse 38, that includes both the good and the bad. Verse 39, so why should we complain? 
It's in your best interest to accept this fact that God is in control and he has decreed all that has come to pass. The point, friends, is that we will not find ever a pathway to hope until we can say, the Lord is the one who withheld my dream job from me. The Lord is the one who won't give us a child. The Lord is the one who took away my hope of getting married. The Lord is the one who took the life of my loved one. The Lord caused my financial collapse. God is all-powerful. But God is not only all-powerful. We also need to understand that he is completely just. So we back up to the next group of three, 34 through 36. This amazingly powerful God will not tolerate evil or injustice forever. He does not approve, verse 36, of crushing people underfoot, of denying justice, of subverting others in lawsuits. He does not approve of the wrongs that have been done. You see, our God is all powerful. He has decreed these things and he is completely just. There are times when he decrees things of which he does not approve. This is what God is like. And when we hold both of these traits of God in harmony with one another, we can look at our current horrific situation and apply the truth of verse 22 that his love and mercy haven't ended. And that brings us to verse 31 to 33 here. This is where he takes the truth and applies it to his feelings. This is the heart of the poem. And, and, and actually, this is the second group of three verses that all start with the same word in Hebrew. So it draws attention to it. In Hebrew, it's the word translated as for, 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 although the ESV in 32 translates it as but. It's the same word. These verses may contain this poem's heart of hearts because this is the application of the truth of 19 through 39 to the feelings of verses 1 to 18. Verse 31, he says, The Lord has cast me off, but not forever. In verse 32, he says, The Lord has caused grief, but he will have compassion flowing from his abundant love. And in 33, he says, the Lord, make no bones about this, the Lord is the one who afflicts and grieves the children of men. But he does not do so from his heart. This is not who he is at his core. This is simply what he must do in order to show off who he really is. His heart of hearts is not to afflict, but to bless. His heart is not to condemn you, but to have mercy on you. Friends, how does all of this apply for us? 
when you are a hot mess under affliction or you are trying to help someone else who is just a mess of emotion and anxiety. The fight for hope means first being honest about your feelings. That was part one of this poem. But second, the real fight comes when you apply the truth about God to all of those messy feelings. Fight the fight to remember what you still have. Whatever you might have lost that you're grieving, remember what you still have, who you still have, that you can never lose. If you will trust him because he is your portion and your inheritance forever. And that one that you have is a sovereign and a just God who will one day make everything right. He is responsible for having gotten you into this mess. And he will take responsibility for getting you out of it. Because he is good. It is good to wait for him. And to wait on his timing for rescue. He does not do this to you because he likes to grieve you. His heart is one of the deepest mercy and compassion. So having processed all your gut-wrenching feelings and fighting to remember what you know is true, what you believe to be true about the Lord, how does this change you? In the end, how does it affect what you really, what it is that you really want? My last two points here will be very quick. Point number three here is to confess your tendency to vacillate. I have time to read only portions of the rest of the chapter to highlight two things that the poet is doing here at the end of this chapter. First, he explores what he really, really wants his people to do with God. What he wants his people to do with God. Verse 40. Let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts and hands to God in heaven. We have transgressed and rebelled and you have not forgiven. You see, what does he really want his people to do with God? He wants them to repent. He wants them to take a closer look and discover what got them into this mess. And when they remember that despite their tremendous sin, which has now exiled them from the land, when they remember that God's covenant love and mercy toward them is not at an end, they might be moved to turn away from their sin and return to him to waiting for him. That's the first thing he's doing, is talking about what he really wants his people to do with God. But second, he explores what he really wants God to do with his people. What he really wants God to do with his people. Look at verse 52. I have been hunted like a bird by those who were my enemies without cause. They flung me alive into the pit and cast stones on me. You see, he remembers the time when they tried to kill him. These very people he's talking about, they tried to kill him by throwing him in a pit. Verse 54, he says he thought he was done for. He was finished. In verses 55 through 58, God eventually showed up and rescued him and told him not to fear. Verse 57 And now, verse 59, you have seen the wrong done to me, O Lord. 
judge my cause. Verse 66, you will pursue them in anger and destroy them from under your heavens, O Lord. This is crazy. The poet is still such a mess. He really can't decide whether he wants God to save these people or destroy them for assaulting him. And this is so often the case when our suffering comes through the agency of one or more human persons. How could you ever forgive the person who horrifically abused you? How will you ever trust the person who shamed you and robbed you of your dignity? How could you invite to church or wish the conversion of the drunk driver who killed your beloved child? For me, what do I wish for this guy who tried to sell me a house I couldn't own? put my family into incredible turmoil and never took responsibility for his actions. Such questions, this vacillation, this tendency we have to vacillate, this requires us in conclusion to discover the source of steadfast love and mercy. Because brothers and sisters, we have something the writer of Lamentations didn't have, even though he foresaw the need for it. We have the Lord Jesus Christ who died on a cross under the sovereign justice and unyielding decree of God the Father. Jesus is the proof that God is both all-powerful and completely just because Jesus yielded to the Father's will by taking on the sin of the world so that God could be both just and the justifier of those who trust in Jesus. You see, it would not be just for him to just allow any perpetrators of injustice to simply go free. All right, I will forget what you've done. We won't talk about it anymore. That would not be just. But when someone who is qualified to pay for that sin and injustice does, in fact, pay for it, it is just to no longer make them pay for it. So when we find ourselves in the dilemma between wishing mercy and wishing punishment on those who have put us under this affliction, we have a crucified and risen Savior whose blood speaks a more merciful word than even the blood of the martyrs crying out for vengeance. As we set our hope in his unceasing love for us, it's but one more step for that love to be redirected out from us toward those who have harmed us. If you do not trust in Jesus, you do not yet have access to an unending supply of love and mercy. Your love and your mercy will always have their limits. And we don't have to go very far into the news cycle to see what that looks like on a global scale. And your love and your mercy have their limits to the point where your suffering simply, in the end, 
overwhelms you, and that is only the beginning of the real suffering yet to come. Please trust in the Lord Jesus who gave up everything for you so you could be his. Let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts and hands to God in heaven. So under affliction, how do you fight for hope? Admit how you really feel. Believe what you know to be true. Confess your tendency to vacillate, but then discover in Jesus the true source of steadfast love and mercy. This is how believers in the Lord Jesus Christ fight for hope when they are a mess. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we need you. Lord, please show up. Please bring your salvation and help us as we wait to set our hope in you as our portion, our inheritance. Thank you, Jesus, for dying and rising from the dead to seal the deal and make it possible forever for those who will trust in you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.